Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. If you want to clear up, John, you can go to Wikipedia and you can see the theory that the pros use off of what Chairman Powell wrote yesterday. One of those experts on the theory is a gentleman from Berkeley. William Dudley joins us, the former uh, president of the New York Fed, obviously for years at Goldman Sachs. Bill Dudley, you separate the men from the boys, the women from the girls, with the logic theory of necessary and sufficiency in an undergraduate class. You speak of the necessary and the sufficiency that we saw yesterday from Chairman Powell. What did he do that you say was not sufficient? Well, I think that uh, he did a good job in basically uh, edging closer to the notion of uh, we're gonna start do the taper, but not so much so that it puts the markets on edge. The general expectation at this point is uh, Fed probably won't start tapering, probably won't make the announcement on tapering until November or December, and probably won't start until early next year. So I think they do a good job on that. Where I would where I would say the Fed hasn't gone far enough is the changes that they've made in terms of their standing repo facility that they announced yesterday. It's a good start to have a standing repo facility to backstop the Treasury market, but they capped its size at $500 billion and they limited, uh, limited access to only primary dealers. And I think the access should be considerably broader than that. To support, to, to support the functioning of the treasury market. Also, I think they need to make uh, changes to their capital requirements so that when the Fed buys uh, treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities, and that increases reserves in the banking system, that doesn't interfere with yeah. good market functioning in the treasury market. These are delicate phrases, and we pr- appreciate the candidacy as a former government official. Bill Dudley, we have the overnight repo market now moving back up through $1 trillion. Let's cut to the chase here. If the overnight goes near a trillion, above a trillion, how will the Fed adapt and adjust to that? There's no magic number that where, where if the Fed is soaking up a trillion dollars of, of, of repo through their reverse overnight uh, repo facility, that's not a problem. But I think it does tell you that there are consequences of, of the Fed's asset purchases. The banking system is essentially a wash in reserves, and that's making the leverage ratio more binding, uh, which is constraining banks' activities. And it's also causing banks to essentially push away corporate deposits. Uh, the Fed could fix this by making changes to how the leverage ratio is calculated. And I think they should do this sooner rather than later. Is the Treasury market as it is now broken? No, I don't think it's broken. It just needs a, a, a little bit more uh, you know, belt and suspenders. Uh, the standing repo facility is a good start. But as a group of 30 report was published yesterday points out, there's a lot of other things that need to be done to the U.S. Treasury market. The G30 report talks about uh, central clearing of treasuries uh, for customer trades. That would make the market, I think, a lot more solid. It talks about increasing the transparency in the U.S. Treasury market. So having a standing repo facility uh, is a good start. But there's a lot more to put the U.S. Treasury market on a firmer footing. 
This may sound esoteric. It is not. It is the underpinning of the what we pay for all of the loans that we uh, take out is the underpinning, frankly, the functioning of Wall Street. And there is a question about the functioning of the Treasury yield as, as an indicator right now. Even Fed Chair Powell came out and said he didn't quite understand why yields were, uh, were where they were. And a lot of uh, analysts have raised the issue of liquidity. The fact that there are these malfunctioning aspects of the bond market that made it get very difficult to get a clear signal from treasuries. Do you think that that is a factor in yields that are persistently low given the inflationary outlook? Well, I'm surprised by how low uh, long-dated treasury yields are given the level of inflation, the fact that the economy is in recovery mode, uh, and the fact the Fed has said that they're going to be very, very patient before they actually raise short-term interest rates. In that environment, you would think treasury yields would be higher. I think what it's, what's, what's really happening is uh, quantitative easing is very, very powerful. As the Federal Reserve buys more and more assets, <laughs> Those, that, that creates deposits in the banking system that people don't want to hold. And as they don't want to hold those deposits, they bid up other financial assets. So I think we're just finding out that quantitative easing is very, very powerful in pushing around bond yields and bond prices. We toss around the phrase reaction function, Bill Dudley, in the media like it's a mint. There's a mathiness to it. Can we generate constructive reaction functions given the wall of liquidity, or do we just be, need to become inured to the idea we will have jump conditions, we will have suddenness over the next many two, three, five years? Well, we'll have some suddenness in the sense that the Fed at some point is going to go from maximum monetary policy stimulus to something else. And at some point, the Fed is actually going to lift off and raise short-term rates. Uh, you know, the Fed, I think, is going to try to minimize that jump function by communicating clearly. And mm -hmm. I think they've done a pretty good job in terms of, you know, signaling when the taper might take place and that it's going to take place uh, in a gradual and in, in an organized type of way. Before we came on, we were alluding to Alan Greenspan and Bill Dudley uh, and to Arthur Burns. And do you just assume, uh, and I say this, Dr. Dudley, very carefully, that we have, as we become less accommodative, a measured Greenspanian approach? Are we going to go back to a Fed that's more ad hoc, like we saw with some of the sudden lifts and larger lifts in the Burns era? Well, I hope we don't go back to the Burns area because at that point time, the Fed was very, very late in terms of raising interest rates and pushing down inflation. So that would be a very bad model. I think that what the Fed is doing, though, is basically saying we don't really know exactly where full employment is. And so we want the economy to run a little hot so we can find out where full employment is and make sure we employ the maximum number of people we can uh, without having a long-term inflation problem. Bill, always good to get your views, especially 24 hours after the Fed has met. Bill Dudley there, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and former Federal Reserve Bank of New York president. Michael Schumacher, long ago and far away, there was a CCM5 stripe. That's a stick the rich kids uh, had. And you say this is a yield that's going to look like a CCM5 stripe hockey stick. Discuss that, the nirvana out to a higher yield. Yeah, Tom, especially when you consider the idea of real yields in the U.S. being minus 115, 120, some crazy number in 10 years, it makes very little sense. Real yields at this negative level are remarkably unusual. It's happened only a couple times. The last time was just before the taper tantrum. And you've got to ask yourself, what is the economic backdrop today versus 12 months ago? Substantially better. We can talk about COVID case counts going up recently, et cetera, but still, it's pretty hard to dispute that things look a lot better now than they did then. 
yet yields are much more negative in real space. And we think this is a bit crazy, frankly. So when you've got high inflation, it should push up nominal yields. Real yields probably follow suit. We think the stage is set for yields to climb. However, I've said that before on this show, and in the last couple of times, it's been wrong. So I think a little humility is in order. We think it's going to take a while, probably three to four months for this move to get in train. I think it's probably a November, December type of scenario. To understand why they're going to go higher, Mike, I need to understand why they went lower in the first place. Why did they, Mike? Yeah, a bunch of things came together, John. And in fact, yesterday is a good example. So why did yields drop in the last hour or two of trading yesterday? Well, one of these arcane things, we think it was tips investors adding duration before month end, which is tomorrow. So not the sort of thing you necessarily tie to a Fed meeting, but it did crop up. But I suspect the bigger thing going back to the June Fed meeting is the Fed really gave the green light for people. They said, look, we're not going to do anything for a while. We'll sit here. Maybe we'll put a mention of taper in the statement, that sort of thing but we won't actually really change policy for quite some time. So a lot of investors out there look at the yield backdrop and say, well, it's super low. I have to do something. I've got to pick up a few pennies in front of the steam room or what can I yeah. do? I can move out. I can buy longer maturity, longer duration bonds. Maybe I can sell some options, that sort of thing. But the Fed really put that back in play in June. And we think that was perhaps the big driver. On top of that, you've got overseas flows, which have been pretty strong. Mike, one thing that always confuses me and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with is when people take the price of the bond market and say, this is what the market is looking for, inflation at X percent over whatever time period. Mike, I'm uncomfortable with that because some people buy inflation protection, not with conviction, but as a hedge. And I just wonder, Mike, whether we misread what markets are actually telling us behind the motives of the people making these decisions. I think another way to consider that, John, is does the inflation market that we trade, so tips, swaps, et cetera, is that really predictive of future inflation? I would say not very well. I think you make a good point that quite a few investors and other players out there buy inflation protection because they, they need to, not because they want to. It's probably the case again. But still, in terms of short-term market dynamics, it can have a fairly big effect. I think another way, too, to consider this question is do forward rates in nominals really predict future actual yields? And the answer consistently from academic after academic has been no. And if we take that analysis today, the forward 10-year Treasury rate at year end is about 140. Does anyone really think that's a great predictor of where it'll be? I would say not. So what do we have to see? What's the trigger to get real yields less negative off their lowest levels ever seen? At least I think a few things have to come together, probably even more strength out of the labor market. Thinking about some of the comments that Chair Powell made yesterday, very few specifics, a lot of generalities, but one theme that came through is more and more strength out of the labor market. There's been a lot of concern, speculation, hope perhaps that come September, maybe October, the labor market would be much stronger in the U.S. than it has been. If that happens, that probably pushes yields up quite a bit. If instead, we get a reaction where the COVID case counts have worsened. Delta seems to be becoming almost endemic. That scares a lot of people. That keeps yields pretty low. So I think the tipping point, my colleagues on the Wells Fargo economics team would share this view as well, is going out two to three months. Do you really get a break? Does that supply chain really start to move? Does the labor market clear yeah, up? That's the key question, Mike, for everyone right now. Mike Schumacher, Wells Fargo Global Head of Macro Strategy.
We're getting to Chris Ancy starting to tear it apart for our top live team. And Johnny makes very clear consumptions there. We're going to get a breakout on that data uh, as it comes along. But again, that goes to where David Rosenberg is, which is not the numbers we're looking at right now, which is the last three months. But where are we right now? And John, that is a raging debate. Let's go right to this right now with Matthew Lizzetti. Thrilled he's with us with a more optimistic Deutsche Bank right now. Matthew, this data, totally unfair question but it's unfair Thursday. Does this data allow Deutsche Bank to adjust to a more cautious economic growth? Sure. Th thanks so much for ha having me. Um, you know, I, I don't think it in and of itself really, really changes too much. We'll have to see the details there. It looks like consumer spending was actually a good amount stronger than expected uh, in Q2. I think <clears> the key question for the growth trajectory over these quarters is, is actually a lot about inventory. So, Inventories was expected to be a big drag in Q2. We expect to get a big boost in Q3. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, this data is backward looking. It is Q2. Uh, I think what is most important for markets in the Fed right now is the labor market data. Uh, and the stalling out of jobless claims that we've seen is an important development. Uh, you know, jobless claims have not been as reliable as they were pre-COVID. But it is evidence of, you know, some stalling out or some softening in, in the improvement that we've seen there. If that continues, it's, it's certainly an important development from the Fed's perspective, because Powell noted yesterday, uh, certainly that is the key consideration for when they are going to taper. Matt, for many people, September and Q4 is just huge. It's going to be massive to shape some of these debates. Goldman out earlier this week suggesting that that full service sector recovery is going to take a little bit more time. They downgraded their estimates. Where are you and the team at Deutsche Bank <coughs> on that argument right now, Matt? Sure. I think there's, you know, this is the, the area of debate. We have uh, expecting goods spending to be coming off, durable goods spending, housing to be coming off. And we were anticipating that services would help lift the economy to, to a stronger growth profile in, in the second half of the year. Obviously, the, the return of COVID and, and the Delta variant is a downside risk to that. But I view it as a downside risk, not something that impacts our baseline outlook at significantly at this point. I think Chair Powell made a good point yesterday. If we look back at these past waves, uh, they were not as impactful as we were anticipating. Uh, I anticipate that that will probably be the case again. And when we look at those states that are probably most susceptible that have lower vaccination rates, I think they're also less likely to bring back restrictions. You're also less likely to see those people pull back from economic activity. So it is no doubt a downside risk to growth over these coming quarters uh, but that's how we're viewing it, not not impacting our baseline outlook at this point. Matt, when you dig under the headline of the GDP number, are we getting whiffs of stagflation? And I, I know that this is the pendulum of doom. However, residential investment spending fell about a 10 percent annualized pace. This has to do with supply chain issues, a lack of lumber and, of course, the high prices. Are the high prices a headwind to growth at this point? I think in certain areas, they certainly are. Um, housing is one. Uh, and yes, there are supply chain issues, but we're seeing demand come off. Mortgage purchase applications have weakened. Prospective uh, buyer traffic has, has softened. So demand is being impacted. But I, I don't want to just focus on the prices either. We've seen you know, durable goods spending was 16% above where it was pre-COVID trend. Uh, housing jumped above the pre-COVID trend. So this is a very unusual recovery. It was a very unusual recession. And we've been anticipating that these cyclical sectors will come off, even if you didn't get these, these price pressures. So that, that does make the services sector really critical to the trajectory of the economy 
from here on out. Uh, and we do think that it will help to carry stronger growth over the second half of the year. Do you think that this is indicative, the weakness, or at least the disappointments that we're seeing in economic data points? I don't want to call a 6.5% growth weakness, but we have gotten disappointment after disappointment. Does that indicate a trend that will carry into the end of the year, or could things change in September when kids supposedly go back to school? Yeah, from a labor market perspective, I think we are all anticipating, and Chair Powell and the Fed is certainly anticipating that that will help to open up labor supply. Um, you know, we have focused on COVID as being a big driver of the constraints on labor supply, not necessarily the unemployment insurance benefits. And so whether or not schools are, schools are able to reopen significantly uh, in September fully in person, I think is a critical uh, question for the labor market outlook. You know, at this point, we just don't know. Uh, we'll have to see how the variant evolves over the next couple of months, how policy evolves over the next couple of months. Yeah. But that will be a really important consideration for getting back to you know, maximum employment or these types of labor market numbers that the Fed wants to see. There's a lot we don't know. There's a couple of things we can take a good guess on. One of them is inventories, and you mentioned that earlier on, Matt. This is what Luke Cower had to say of UBS. The 1.1 percentage point drag from inventories in Q2 is just not sustainable in the slightest. Yesterday's drawdowns equal tomorrow's demand. Matt, would you go with that as well? That seems to be what has led us towards this downside surprise this morning. Absolutely. So we were below consensus on, on this GDP print, uh, the key driver of that being a big drag from inventories. We know we have in, in the retail and especially in the auto sector, uh, very low inventories, which we expect to begin to build in the second half of the year. And so I, I think what you tend to see in these numbers, if private final demand is actually pretty strong, which it looks like it might be given the strong consumer spending, mm -hmm. you should get a reversal of inventories and that should help to lift your Q3 growth number versus Q2. Malazetti, I'm going to use a word for Jean-Claude Trichet that he loves to use, and he says it with a French accent, which has got a lot more panache than you and I are going to do, and that is diffusion. There's a belief here and a mystery about the diffusion from a good-centric consumer over to a service sector consumer. Do we see that in this data, or does that wait for another quarter's report? You know, we have been seeing it in, in the monthly data, no doubt. We've seen good spending retail sales uh, in nominal terms has, has flatlined out over the past couple of months. And adjusting for prices, given how strong price gains have been, we've seen weakness in real spending on goods. I want to emphasize that was to be anticipated. We were well above trend on, on good spending, and price pressures are, are obviously having an impact. Uh, so we expect this handoff to the services sector to continue over the next couple of months, next couple of quarters. We're still below uh, you know, where we anticipated we would be in leisure and hospitality uh, and, and all these other service items. So I, I think that should continue to be the key driver for growth going forward. Matt Lazzetti of Deutsche Bank. You're not alone, sir. It's good to catch up. Thank you very much. The movable feast here, folks, is the market reaction and maybe some of the childish interpretation into very sophisticated political economics. Jeffrey Yu has made a career of this at BNY Mellon as their senior strategist. John, why don't you bring in Jeffrey Yu with his perspective synthesizing all this together for Beijing? Jeff Yu joining us now from BNY Mellon, the senior strategist. Jeff, as always, you're going to be super helpful working your way through this issue for us all. Walk me through what we need to pay attention to and what is worth ignoring. Right. So firstly, pay attention to differentiation. What you're seeing with individual companies in China in terms of individual sectors, the regulatory crackdown, there are different motivations behind it. Some have to do with um, international capital involvement, especially in the education sector 
sector, for example, they've stressed there's so much money pouring into an arms race amongst Chinese families to get their kids ahead. Um, it's, you know, it's seen as damaging. So they want to treat this on an individual basis. Um, now, the second part of it is this framework of international investors investing in China. How should it be done? Should it be in the US? Should it be closer to China? That is something they're going to be looking at as well. And here's where you know, geopolitics can come into the fray. Thirdly, and most importantly, I think what people are missing right now, we're talking too much about the equity market right now. We're talking too much about individual companies. What about the growth environment? No one's talked about the triple R cut that has happened and more that may come. No, no one's talking about the Delta variant starting to spread in multiple provinces and municipalities in China. Growth expectations are coming off. And this is what we need to be attuned to heading into the second half of the year. Let's build on that, Jeff. The degree to which the issues in the property market now are linked to perhaps a downgrade to the outlook on the Chinese economy. So two things here. Firstly, let's stick with property now. So any day now, and normally it comes out around the end of July, you know, early August, we get the 2021 financial stability report um, from the PBOC. This is a brilliant report and they look and they do stress test the entire banking system. Last year's numbers, right? If you have a 15 percentage point rise in property MPLs and amongst other scenarios, you can see capital adequacy ratios within Chinese banks go from 15 percent down to below 10, below the regulatory limit, right? So this is how important this is for the sector. Individual companies, they're looking at exposures as well. Is it manageable? Yes. Is it systemic? Probably not at this point. But the damage to wealth, the damage to consumer expectations and households, that will drive growth lower as well. You know, I, I look at, Jeff, you where we are in this. And it's not a crisis, but this moment for China, this moment for the Pacific Rim. And the elephant in the room is we don't have Hong Kong anymore. It's a different Hong Kong. How do you perceive, Jeff, the Western banks? And I don't want you to speak for the management of BNY Mellon, but how do the Western banks adapt and adjust now that Hong Kong is different? Well, they would adapt to looking at China as a whole and the new avenues of opportunities. But right? look at what uh, the, the um, uh, five-year plan detailed. It was very explicit, welcoming foreign investment into China's industries, welcoming foreign talent to drive um, China's quest for self-reliance, right? So China knows it cannot grow by itself. It's going to need external expertise as well. But at the end, end of the day, it has to be done in a way which is manageable and that and does not introduce systemic risk or other risks. So going back to the education issue, for example, this is not a financial systemic risk or anything like that. It's something that's more social and in the prism of falling birth rates and demographics. You know, that is a serious challenge. So if foreign investment facilitated by the financial institutions, if it's seen as broadly damaging, then like any regulator globally, it's not a China-specific issue. They probably want to do something about it. It's growing pains for Wall Street and for everyone. And I think as China develops and integrates itself with the rest of the world financially, we have more index inclusion, CGBs increasing ownership. All of this is going to happen. You know, just uh, calibrate it, uh, pick the right pace, because sometimes, you know, things, even with good intentions, you can actually end up with bad outcomes. <clears throat> Jeff, this is one reason why a number of investors said that in particular the education sector in China, but including other shares as well, were uninvestable following a number of regulatory crackdowns over the weekend and Monday. The idea that it wasn't just education, it was also the data and the control over such things uh, in the country. Given the pushback, the fact that authorities did have meetings with banking executives to try to push back some of this concern and shore up support for yeah. the markets, do we have a sense of how far or not they are willing to go with crackdowns, with restrictions in specific industries uh, that could further royal markets? 
So I think China is learning uh, as well, like any regulator. You know, th th uh, this is a new environment for China. They've realized how invested in the international community is in certain sectors, right? So again, education and being one of them. Uh, so they wanted to gauge the market fallout. And if it has become excessive and you saw uh, the three-pronged um, uh, launch um, from uh, the main financial papers in China yesterday, expressing that over the medium to longer term, China is a strong market, welcoming global investors uh, to there. So, of course, they don't want to damage sentiment either. They, they know how interlinked it is uh, and the country needs to stay um, interlinked. So they will learn as well from this. And as future sectors go by, maybe they'll do it differently as well. Um, but just pay attention to the strategic initiatives. They want to communicate them better up ahead. By the way, something similar happened a few years ago to the childcare sector, exactly the same language, not allowed to make profit and not allowed to use capital markets to yeah. raise money. They wanted to splash a nationalized framework. It seems we all forgot about that. So this has happened again. And again, they're learning by doing as we all are right now. Jeff, let's put some money to work. We spent a long time talking about the risks, the framework for thinking about the situation. Where yeah. do you want to put capital to work considering everything you've just said in the last seven minutes? Right. So three things here. Firstly, on Renminbi, I still think Renminbi trades a range and ignoring all of the current news right now, they are worried about CPI and the PPI divergence, right? So uh, uh, exports are still very important. So they wanted to limit Renminbi appreciation anyway. So the recent news over the last few days, and probably it's not unwelcome. In Europe, I think what the ECB has done, very good for European equities. I think those trades and where people invest in European equities on a hedge basis, I think that will work as well by anchoring expectations. And finally, the US and the dollar, um, we're not ready to call time on, on, on the dollar strength yet, not by any means. It's still going to lead the way in major policy renewal and normalization. So these carry trades, you want to own dollar carry against the low yielders, especially in Asia and some of the high yielders, I think they're going to falter against the dollar as well. Jeff, interesting stuff. Jeff Yu of BNY Mellon, a strategist I've known from London, Tom, for a long, long time and one of the sharpest in the city, that's for sure. Right now, and this is really, really important for your infrastructure, we go to the gentleman from Flint and on up to Saginaw and Bay City. Dan Kildee is someone with a real view of America different from maybe inside the Beltway in Washington, and we're honored that he could uh, join us from inside the Beltway in Washington this morning. Dan, you and your family and your constituents have lived the worst water crisis in America. You know better than anybody about lead pipes, about water structure. Is this bill good for Flint, Michigan? Well, it's, it's hard to say. It's a step in the right direction. The question is whether or not there's enough of an emphasis on water infrastructure to prevent the next Flint, Michigan from happening. In some ways, you know, and ironically, Flint uh, ha has some advantage in the fact that the failure of Flint's infrastructure occurred in public view. I was able to get help for Flint, even when I was in the minority, to replace the lead pipes there. But the real question is, will the warning that Flint provided the rest of the country be heeded? Will we have enough right. money in this legislation to replace every lead pipe in America? And I'm not sure yet we do, but maybe it's a step in the right direction. In the third world crisis of Flint, Michigan and water, there was no discussion of pay-fors. It was like, let's go, let's fix it. How do you right. respond to this juvenile debate over how we're gonna pay for this versus let's go? 
Well, the way I respond, it's a really good question, is to point out that when it comes to water infrastructure or other infrastructure failures, we're all going to pay for it. The question is, you can pay now or you can pay later. Flint's a good example. If Flint, say seven years ago, had 30 or 40 million dollars available to switch out its lead pipes, we would have saved what is now approaching a billion dollars in costs of compensation to victims, of fixing the infrastructure after it's broken. So yes, we do need to come up with a way to pay for it, but we can't start with the premise that we're not going to pay for it if we don't do it. If we don't fix our infrastructure, there's a big due bill coming our way, much bigger than the cost of fixing it in the first place. Congressman, $550 billion in light of the fiscal stimulus passed over the past year is not that big, especially when spent over eight years. How much in the conversations that you have and the negotiations that burn the midnight oil as you eat tacos and chicken parm each night as you try to hash out the details here, how much of the debate is connected to the $3.5 trillion plan that Senator Sanders is working on right now? It is connected because if, in fact, we have a bipartisan deal, and the president, many of us, have been very committed to do as much as we can in a bipartisan fashion, that doesn't mean our work's done, but it pushes more of what we may need to do into a reconciliation package. And the concern that I have is that some of our senators who seem willing to work together on the bipartisan piece get a little cold feet when we think about what we want to put into the reconciliation package. And I'm talking about Democratic senators in this case. We've got a lot of business ahead of us. If we don't fix this stuff, it doesn't mean it goes away. It doesn't mean that China is not spending 10 times what we are as a percentage of their GDP on infrastructure. What I'm trying to co convey to my colleagues is we really don't have a choice. We have to do this. We can't have an infrastructure bill that says one out of four Americans get to have 21st century infrastructure, the rest of us have to compete with 19th and 20th century infrastructure. Sooner or later, we got to fix it. And so yeah. more of it may have to be pushed into that reconciliation bill if we don't get enough in the infrastructure package itself. Which raises a question, Congressman, about unity among Democrats. There's been a lot talked about the splintering of the party, the whole uh, progressive versus the more moderate wing. Given the conversations that you're having, how difficult is it going to be? Can you characterize whether people are coming together and coming to a more uh, unified vision here? It's hard. I mean, one of the things about having a party with a lot of diversity of thought is that we have a lot of diversity of thought, and it's often hard to land on the same spot. The tough thing is, if we're all being asked to compromise, we all have to compromise. We can't have a situation where somebody on the left says, the right has to compromise or the middle has to compromise. If we're going to come together, that means everybody's got to acknowledge that the final product is something that if they were doing it by themselves, they wouldn't do it. And right now, I'm not sure we've completely landed that message. I think too many folks are taking an absolutist approach <clears throat> that without my specific priority, mm -hmm. I'm not going to help. And that's just, that is not the way this place is designed to work. And the American people don't care what the excuses are. They just want us to get this work done. They want us to get the work done that affects oh. their lives. You know, the, the, the Beltway arguments are of no interest to the people I represent. 
Dan, I got like 14 more questions, but we don't have enough time. Dan Kildee of Flint, Michigan, thank you so much for joining us today. The congressman from the 5th District uh, in uh, Michigan. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.